We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Big day for us. At the end of our service, we will be um, ordaining two new young men to the office um, of deacon here at North Park. And so thank you for being here today to to help encourage those guys as well. So we'll do that at the end of our service. And so, um, you know, we only do this ever so often around here. And so it's it's a big deal when we get to do this. And it gives us an opportunity um, to kind of set aside some time and to and talk about the topic of service because that's ultimately what the deacon ministry is about. And so given the importance of this task, I thought it was a good time for us to pause our series in Daniel for a week. We'll pick back up uh, in Daniel chapter 4 next week. And, uh, but this week we want to uh, kind of focus on the importance of humility and service in the Christian life. You know, the word deacon in the Bible, it simply means servant. That's all it means. It means servant. In fact, you won't see much talk in the Bible about what deacons are to do, but rather on who they are to be. The focus is on their character more than it is on actually what they are to do, because that service might look different at different times and things of that nature in different churches. But we say it this way around here, uh, all those who hold offices uh, in the church, whether they be pastors or whether they be deacons, either of those offices, they're called to serve. Pastors are called to be servant leaders and deacons are called to be leading servants. And so they are, together they are to serve the church. But here's the thing. Even if you're not a pastor and even if you're not a deacon this morning, and the majority of us here this morning are not in either of those two offices, um, if you're a Christian this morning, you are called to serve. In fact, you were saved to serve. We are to lovingly and humbly serve Christ, one another, and our neighbors for the glory of God. That's That's a huge part of what it even means to be a Christian. And deacons are individuals in the local church who we have recognized and set apart and we're to look at as examples and go, oh, so that's what it looks like to serve well. So that's why here at North Park, we don't ever, we don't go looking for people and go, you know what, maybe if we made them a deacon, then we could get them to serve, right? That's just not how, that's like missionary dating. It usually doesn't end very well. And so, but on the other hand, we look at people and go, look, they're serving. Now let's see and discover if, they're, if, 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 we, if, they're, if they meet the qualifications to place in this office. We recognize the fact that they already deacon before they're deacons. But we're all called to serve. But we don't really like the word, right? We don't really, it's, it's against human nature to serve or to be a servant or to take on a posture of a servant. We naturally think of a servant as a lowly office. You know, somebody tells us to do something, Instead of asking us to do something, and our natural human instinct is, who do you think you are? You think I'm your servant? You think you're the boss of me? That's just, it just kind of grates against us. In fact, in our culture to this day, a sign of wealth and a sign of power and a sign of having made it in life is to have people serve you, not for you to serve people, to have people work for you, right? Maybe they mow your grass. Maybe they wash your car. Maybe they clean your house or cook your food. It may be that you hire this to your home or you go out to eat, right? What happens when you go out to eat? Somebody else cooks the food. Somebody else brings the food. Somebody else fills your glass and then you pay for it, but they, they serve you, right? And we all know eating out costs a lot more than ramen noodles at home, right? It just does. <laughs> And so even that can be the places you eat, the, the hotels you stay in, all those things can be like status symbols in our culture. In the business world, the number of people that work for you or the number of people that you manage, all these are like status symbols. And it's all about people serving us. That's what our culture is kind of wired that way. It's just kind of natural to recognize that. But in our minds, being served equals this status, this making it power, influence. And here in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, that's where we're going to be this morning. 
we get this incredible picture of Jesus flipping the script on how we think about service. Leading up to the moment that we're about to see in Scripture, um, Jesus, um, his own disciples had had debates about who was the greatest among them. You know, Jesus is telling them things like, guys, I'm, I'm going to die here pretty soon. And they would go off and they would debate, well, that once he's gone, who's going to be the greatest, Right? Well, once the guy in the head chair is gone, who gets to be the real leader, right? And that's the kind of debates they would have going on. And Jesus knew this, and, and Jesus had, had even had to tell them already that greatness in the kingdom of God is about service. Jesus even said that he himself, we're going to see this verse again in a moment, but did not come to be served but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. You see, Jesus in his kingdom, he flips the script. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his kingdom, he shows us that it's not about how many people are serving you in life, it's about whether or not you are serving others. He completely reverses the way our culture views it. And he gives us an incredible picture of this in John chapter 13. Other than the cross, it's the greatest picture of service that I think you can find in the Bible. So look with me at John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And I'll narrate a little bit as we go. And then I'm going to give you a couple of principles about service from this. As we talk about serving like Jesus. Because that's what we're called to do, to serve like Jesus. John 13 verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's pause there. So in John 13, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure, John tells us. That means his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension to be at the Father's right hand. And the scene is what is termed the Last Supper. That's what the scene is here in John 13 what we call the Last Supper. It's the same scene where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. It's the same scene where Judas is going to dip in the cup with Jesus and then he's going to depart to go betray him. It's, it's that climactic scene. And it tells us here that Jesus knew that his hour had come to return to the Father. And then it tells us what? That he loved his disciples and that he loved them until the end. So this tells us something about the passage and the direction and the purpose of this passage. Ultimately, Jesus is going to show his love ultimately by laying down his life on the cross. But the rest of this story here in John 13 is also a picture of Christ's love for his people pointing ahead to a greater expression that's going to happen on the cross. It's it's a foreshadowing. So in his deep love for his people, he's about to give us an example to follow. He's about to point us to the cross and beyond the cross to the crucified life. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now this is an incredible scene, an incredible picture. John tells us here that Judas is already cooperating with Satan to betray Jesus. Now, that phrase isn't put there to excuse the evil Judas did. It's to show just how evil it was. In verse 3, it says Jesus knows some things. He knows that God the Father has given him all things. He knows that he's from God. He knows he's going back to God. He has no doubts about who he is as the Son of God. He is fully aware of who he is. And knowing all of that, he does the strangest thing. He gets up from the supper, takes the form of a servant, and begins to wash feet. Now understand, in their day, we don't really do this in our day, right? Nobody washed your feet when you came in this morning. You've got these wonderful things called uh, um, closed-toed shoes, right? 
We have this other wonderful thing called pavement, right? But in their day, it was, it was dirt roads and people wore sandals and they traveled on the backs of animals. And so it was, man, your feet were gross all the time. And the roads were dirty and traveling by foot, all kinds of, you can imagine, just nastiness would collect on feet. And then you come into a house, come into a place to eat or something like that. So it was custom to have your feet washed. But nobody wanted to do that. That was the role of a servant, right? So, or a slave. There would be someone else that was being paid to do that. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the job of the host to even do that. And people didn't even wash each other's feet like peer to peer. This was only the, a servant. It was a, the, this like the lowest of the low would actually bend down and wash people's feet. So imagine they all come in to eat at this solemn supper and custom would have been for a servant to come over and go, oh, before you sit down to eat, let me wash your feet. But there's no slave there. There's no paid servant there. There's no volunteers, notice. Peter, John, James, none of those guys are running over going, hey, before we sit down, somebody needs to wash our feet before we go seat at the table. Because that's what they would do. They would sit at the table and they would recline, because most of them were right-handed, on their left elbow, and they would put their feet behind them. All right, so you can kind of, I'm not going to display that for you this morning for, for all of our sakes, but imagine them sitting down with their feet curled behind them, propped on their left elbow, and that's kind of how they would tend to eat the supper. And so the person could come along behind them, and they don't even have to look them in the eye. And they would begin to wash their feet if they hadn't already done it when they walked in. And so they're sitting there and nobody's done that. There's no volunteers. And then all of a sudden, you feel the warm, wet towel on your foot and you look behind you and it's Jesus, right? That's kind of the scene here. And you've already seen Jesus. He gets up from the supper, says he takes off his outer clothing. And so now he's kind of, he's clothed for work. He's got his, his, his undergarment clothing on. They would wear two layers, and he takes the towel and he puts it around his waist and he begins to wash feet. Now, it's been noted by Bible scholars that there is not a single thing in history like this where the leader washed his followers' feet. Not in Jewish history, not in Roman history. And it was custom in those cultures to wash feet during all this time. And they cannot find a single recorded act other than John 13 where the, a leader washed the feet of his followers. It's not there. There's no scene of a king doing this. There's no scene of, of other rabbis doing this, and that's because Jesus is not like other kings, and Jesus is not like other rabbis. This is a unique event in the history of the world. And in our day and age, it's just like we don't really, it's hard for us to grasp it, but it's a huge deal. And I thought this week, like, how can I illustrate the magnitude of this? How can I put it in words for you to help you understand and help us to unpack the magnitude of them seeing their rabbi, the, they believe to be the Messiah, the Son of God, come around and begin to wrap a towel around his waist and to touch their feet with his bare hands and to begin to wash them. And how can, to get you mag, the magnitude of all this, is this the only way I can illustrate it, is to say this, there's not an illustration. Because anything I can come up with would fall vastly short to helping you comprehend. The best, the illustration is the, is, is the text. The fact that the son of God who formed them and made them and gave them life, whom they had sinned against and who had now come into the world to die because of our sin is now going to wash the feet of his creation. It's an incredible picture of his sinful creation. So let's see what happens when they see this happening. Look at verse six. So he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pause there. So Peter has a natural reaction to someone he believes to be the son of God, God in the flesh, washing his feet, which is, do you wash my feet? In other words, I should be washing your feet. I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't volunteer for this gig, and now Jesus is doing it, right? I mean, you got to think what the disciples probably had in their mind. There had to be some shame. It's kind of like you, you, you show up for work, and something that you were supposed to have done didn't get done, and so the boss shows up like an hour before you, and you walk in, and he's doing it or she's doing it. And you're kind of like, oh, right? I was going to do that. I just didn't get to that yet, right? It's got to be embarrassing that Jesus is doing something that none of them volunteered to do. But Jesus says, yeah, 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 I'll wash your feet. I have to wash your feet. You can't have any part of me if I don't wash your feet. You'll understand later what I'm doing here. And when he says you'll understand later, he's talking about going to the cross. You're going to begin to understand my role as the servant of God, out of Isaiah, prophesied that the Messiah would be the servant of God. You're going to begin to understand these things later after I go to the cross. Then Peter says it. He says, never, never shall you wash my feet. You shall not do this, Jesus. And Jesus' response still holds true today. If I do not wash you, you cannot have any share or part with me. You, you can't be in relationship with me. You can't serve in my name. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't be my disciple if I don't wash you. In this act of foot washing, you have two teachings happening at once. Here we see Jesus teaching the importance of being cleansed and forgiven by him. He's giving a physical illustration of, I need to wash you. But in the next section that we're about to read, he comes back to the importance of following his example as a servant. And so, but these things are connected, we're going to see this morning, I believe, throughout the scriptures. Now here, hearing Jesus' reply, that you can't have any part with me if I don't wash you. Peter says, well, just give me a bath, right? Where's the tub, right? Because I, I want to be connected to Jesus. I want a relationship with Jesus. I, I want to follow you. But an important secondary truth is taught here about this cleansing. And he says, that, well, you got bathed already, right? So what you're saying is at conversion, at conversion, you're washed, you're made clean, you're made new, you're forgiven of your sin. So you don't, that don't need to happen again. That happens one time. When you repent of your sin and believe the gospel, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But when that happens, that doesn't need to happen again. But as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, we still sin. 1 John tells us we're liars if we say we don't have sin. So even as followers of Christ, we continue to sin and we need to apply the, what, what we already know to be true, that Jesus died for our sins and he's risen again. And, and we, need to, we need to be consistent and faithful repenters when we recognize sin in our life, forsaking that. And it's kind of likened here in this text is to having your feet washed instead of your whole body. Dealing with your sin as you recognize it in your life. Staying fessed up, as they say. Confessing your sin, dealing with it when you recognize it. But then Jesus is going to begin to apply this whole scene in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Wow. So Jesus teaches the big picture here. The overarching story, uh, the illustration of what's happening is here is he has, what he has done, they are to do. They are to follow his example. Jesus' point is not that we are to literally have foot washing services and not, not to, not to uh, condemn those that do, but that, 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 it kind of misses the point. In, in our culture, it wouldn't even make sense if you'd have came in this morning, we would have washed your feet. It, this had applic- applicable sense right here in this moment, right? Like their feet were dirty, right? In some ways, it would be easier for us to say, hey, once a year, let's have a foot washing service and to kind of go through a rite and a ritual that's not even necessarily needed versus doing the hard work of me figuring out and you figuring out how we can serve one another, which Jesus saw a need and he met it, right? There there was a need. They had dirty feet and he met the need. And his point is, we are to serve one another. We are to find needs in each other's lives and in the church, and we are to to meet those needs with our service. We are to deeply love one another and be willing to humbly serve each other. Even our leaders should humbly serve the church and one another. So I want to give you two principles of how we can learn about serving like Jesus. And we have to apply these principles if we're going to be people that follow the example of our Lord. And the first one is this. Number one, you must be served by Christ. Uh, before you can serve, I think it was John Popper that helped me understand this a few years ago uh, on another text. But before you can serve in Christ's name, before you can serve Christ, before you can serve others in Jesus' name, you have to be served by Christ. We, we can't truly serve in his name until we've experienced his service. See, Jesus said if he doesn't cleanse us, we can't have any part with him. And a transformational relationship with Christ starts with the forgiveness of your sins. It starts with salvation. It starts with cleansing, having our sins washed away. And in this entire act, Jesus is pointing them to the cross. Uh, this, this is an illustration of something that's about to happen, a greater service that's about to be rendered. He's helping them prepare for the greater act of service. Because before they could be real servants, they needed to be served by the Lord Jesus. You know, once James and John asked Jesus, for spe- they were brothers, and they asked Jesus for special seats in his kingdom, on his right hand and on his left. Hey, since the kingdom's coming, you know, when that day's here, can, can, can I sit on your right and can my brother sit on your left? Can we have the places of honor? And this really angered the rest of the disciples when they heard about what they had done because they were probably mad that they didn't ask first. They wanted dibs, right, like calling shotgun. And they even debated once about who would be the greatest among them. They had had that debate, as I mentioned earlier. And this is what Jesus said after that debacle in, John, in Mark 10, 45, after James and John's request. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus saying in John 10, 45? I didn't come for you to serve me. I don't need you to serve me. <laughs> I don't need you to serve Or in Acts 17, when Paul tells him, he says, look, you, you can't, human hands can't serve God. You, we, God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need you this morning. God, God's not out there recruiting like, oh, I'm in desperate need of a few good men and a few good women to go out. God doesn't need our service. Rather, we need his. We're the needy ones. We're the ones in need of someone to serve us. So Jesus is saying, I didn't come to 
to, to be served, but I came to actually serve. And he says, the chief way I'm going to do this is I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm gonna, I see a need, and I'm about to go meet it. And the need is, you're lost, and you're sinful, and your relationship with God is broken, and this world is broken, so I've come to fix it. And so I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to bear your sin in my body, and I'm going to take the judgment and the punishment you deserve on the cross. I'm going to serve you by, in the ultimate way by dying for you, ransoming you. That's what he says in Mark 10, 45. So in John 13, Jesus is just giving a a physical illustration of that. At the supper, he's once again telling them to serve, but he's also told them, I've got to serve you. You can't have any part with me if I don't cleanse you. Let me serve you and then follow my example and serve one another. You got to get the order right. Do you know this morning that Jesus wants to serve you? That the son of God, the maker of heaven and earth stands ready to serve you this morning? He doesn't need your service, but we certainly need his. He's in need of nothing. In fact, he says, I, that's why I came, that we're the ones that need to be served. We're the ones that need help. And the chief way he does that is cleansing us from our sin. And then what does he do? He gives, when we get saved, when you become a Christian, what does he do? He gives you the Holy Spirit, whom he deems the, calls the, the helper, right? On the cross, Jesus performed the greatest act of service in human history. And he still stands ready to cleanse sin today, to apply that to our lives. And you won't be ready to serve others until, until, you've been, until you've recognized and received the service of Christ on your behalf at the cross. Until you've had your heart of pride melted by the humble love of Christ, until you've seen your own need met in Jesus, we aren't ready to tackle the needs of others, to bear the burdens of others only those that recognize their desperate need for Christ to serve them and who have received that by faith can be transformed to recognize and serve the needs of others. Otherwise, we will be serving to earn, serving to save ourselves, serving to make a name for ourselves, serving to get instead of to give. I need to humbly receive Christ's service if I want to become a true, humble servant. Notice, this whole episode is about Jesus showing his love for the disciples. He's showing his love for them by serving them in this way. He introduced us to that in the first first verse. He says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. He's showing us this this is about his love for us. And this story is an incredible picture of the love of Christ that points us ahead to that great picture of love on the cross. And this picture has a call in it for us to follow and to serve him. And Jesus is, is preparing his disciples. He's preparing them for his departure because then they're going to have to lead. They're going to have to serve. They're, they're going to have to go and to, and to take his mission and his gospel into the world. And Jesus knew, it says, that the Father had given him all things. It says he knew that he was from God and was returning to God. And this shows us Jesus' humility. It shows us that he was secure in his identity as the son of God. And he, he knew all these things and yet chose to humble himself. And, and here's the danger for us this morning. If we aren't secure in God's love for us, if we aren't secure in our identity in Christ as a beloved child of God, we may serve others out of a position of insecurity instead of out of a place of security. We may find ourselves actually through serving, taking instead of giving. And this can lead to us using people instead of serving people. Serving to try to to get love. Serving to get recognition. Serving to get acclaim. To feel like a hero. And what's happening is we're serving out of emptiness instead of fullness. So you can either serve out of emptiness and go, you know, 
I just need to feel loved, and I need to feel important, and I need to feel significant. So if I go do these things, I'll get this love and this recognition and all this, and it'll make me feel better. Or you can have been served by Christ and understand what happened on the cross, and you can understand his love for you and the magnitude of it the best the human mind can, and you can revel in that, and you can be filled with an understanding of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. And out of that fullness, you can go and serve others. And that's your two choices. And one's a way of taking and one's a way of giving. It's like when you go to a restaurant and your glass gets empty. You know, you got your water there and it gets low and they come by and they fill it up, right? And a little bit later it's low again. They come by and they fill it up. What they're not doing is going around to other tables and going, hey, are you going to drink that? Right? And pouring it in. Okay, somebody else needs it. And going over and then do it. No, they go to, a, there's a source that they go to way back in the kitchen somewhere, where it's like this unlimited supply of that water, and they just keep filling up their pitcher and coming and filling it up. And in the same way in the Christian life, we are to serve others out of fullness, out of a supply, that not that we siphoned off of somebody else, but we get from God. Because we understand his love for us. We've been transformed by the gospel because we understand Christ came to serve us and we're so transformed, we're so filled up with understanding his love for us that we can't help but to go fill somebody else's cup because ours runneth over. But the other way is really just selfish and self-centered and we're all prone to it and we've all done it at some point or another, but it's not real service. But when we're filled We can serve not so people will like us or love us or recognize us or to be a hero or to get acclaim or to fill our emptiness, but from a place of fullness. So you need to be served by Christ and you need to understand what he's done for you and you need to wrap your mind and your heart around that and you need to revel in that and you need to to think on that and you need to meditate on that and you need to constantly come back to that. And then secondly, the second one's the action point, right? We need to be serving one another. And you say, well, that, that sounds kind of simple. And that kind of like the whole title of the message? But yeah, that, that's kind of the whole point. When Jesus boils this down, he tells us this is an example. Starting in verse 12, he says, he, he, when, he, when he closes this down, and he's pinpoint what he's saying is this is an example to follow. This is something to do. As I have done for you, you are to go to do. Service is an action. It, it's, it's not good intentions. Jesus isn't calling us here to, to feel a certain way. He's calling us to live a certain way. He's calling us to behave a certain way. He's calling us to active service of others, to one another. And if we're going to obey Jesus and follow his example, we need more than good intentions. We need to pursue, to actively pursue meeting the needs of others and of the local church and service. He doesn't mean we're to literally wash feet, like I said earlier. He means we are to do whatever is necessary to serve one another. If we walk away from this with nothing but a foot washing service, not that there's anything wrong with that. We've missed the forest for the trees, though. The point is, pursue loving, humble service every single day. And if we're going to serve like Jesus, if we're going to be actively serving others, then like him, we've got to have, we've got to love, we've got to have a love for other people. This whole passage starts with us understanding that Jesus did this out of love. Jesus' act of service here and at the cross was motivated by a deep love for others. People who love Jesus and his church, they serve others. See, love leads to service. It leads to action, right? And so if I love the church, I serve the church. If I love you, I'll serve you. Jesus loved me, therefore he served me by laying down his life for me on the cross. True service is love and action. 
It's not simply just a duty or something we're crossing off a list. It's genuine love. It's our actions that prove our heart, right? That prove our love. And so service is love and action. Some guy wants to prove his love for some girl. What he doesn't do is never do anything kind for her, right? Take her out to eat, never let her pick the restaurant, never, never, never invite her on a date with all of his other girlfriends, right? His actions would betray whatever he says he's trying to do, right? He, he, you know, love speaks in action. And if I love God's people, I'll serve them. It's like Jesus. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I love you. The Bible doesn't just say, for God so loved the world. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Love requires action. And if we're going to be serving like Jesus, we've got, we've got to genuinely have that heart and love for others. And if we have that, it'll show up in service. But like Jesus, it, it'll break apart if we, let, if we don't let humility if we don't let the attribute of humility begin to fill our life and to begin to repent of and forsake our pride. Jesus wasn't proud. Jesus was humble. And humility is the attitude that leads to service. I don't care how much we say we love others. If we, if we can't get humble before the Lord and before others, our service will break down at some point. Because proud people don't like to serve others. And it takes a combination of love and humility and we see that here in this text with the Lord Jesus. We see at the beginning, Jesus loved them until the end, it says, because of all the things he, but then it says, it says he's given give us that as the overarching picture of his love. But then it says, he knew who he is, he knew who he was, who he's coming from, where he was going. He understood all this, that he's the son of God, and that he's from God. And in the midst of that, it says, he got up, he chose to get up, take off his outer garments, put a towel, pick up basin and water, and to begin to serve. In the midst of the knowledge of who he was and that he was the one worthy to be served. It reminds me of a scene in Philippians, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. He tells us, he says, Have this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so in Philippians 2, we see what did Jesus do? He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, God in the flesh, a servant. He, he humbles and he goes to the, humbles himself and he goes to the cross to die for us. And then you have this scene at the supper, which is, is just kind of like a tangible living illustration of Philippians 2. The one who knows who he is and what he has and who he is as the son of God takes the form of a servant and begins to wash their feet. Listen, as we've already said, we need to be served by him before we serve others. And now I'm telling you, if we're going to follow his example and be serving others, we're going to have to pursue humility and pursue genuine love for others. And if we do that, we can serve like Jesus. I don't mean in, in the same way. That's obviously not the point. But we can follow our Lord's example. If we pursue humility and love, understanding what Christ has done for us, then we can be transformed in such a way that we desire and long to serve and meet the needs of others. But you will never see the action without the right heart. Our service will always break down without the heart of love and humility. But we have to choose. Like Jesus chose to get up and do this, like he chose to go to the cross, we have to choose to serve. It's a conscious choice to do as Jesus did. It's a choice to follow his example, to get the basin and, to ta and the towel and to get to serving his church and his people. 
Notice what Jesus says at the end here. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He says the blessings in the doing. And it's always that way in the Christian life. The Christian life is, is a hands-on experience. It's not all reading and praying, right? There's some things that need to be done. You get to get your hands dirty. You gotta get involved in people's lives. You have to be willing to go and to do and, and to serve. And Jesus says, listen, if you hear and you know and you see my example and you know what you're supposed to do, you'll be blessed if you do it. If you actively serve, you'll be blessed. The word means happy. It's a state of, of understanding your state before God. It's, it's like in the Beatitudes when Jesus tells us, you know, blessed are the meek and all the Beatitudes we have there. It's, it's that same word. Listen, if you want real deep joy in your life, if you want real peace in your life, serve. Serve others. Let me, let me let's, do, let's do this. Let's take them. This is audience participation portion. If you've ever received a sense of joy and satisfaction and peace from getting involved in serving others, raise your hand. Wow. It's almost like it's true. <laughs> Blessed are you if, you if you do it, right? If you, if you serve. It's more blessed, Jesus said, to give than to receive. We've experienced that, right? See, they, all through the Christian life, the blessings, it's in the doing, it's in the action, it's in the getting involved. Once we understand what Christ has done for us, then we go and we get involved in the lives of others. Now listen, unfortunately, there's a lot of grouchy, complaining Christians in the world. And I can be one of them sometimes. I can be just as grouchy as anybody. I can complain just as much as anybody. And so this attitude of service and doing and the blessed is to get involved and to do and to serve and all that kind of stuff, it runs counterculture to what our instincts are now. Right? We, we, we are the Rotten Tomatoes, Yelp, Google review generation. I won't watch a movie. You can ask Christy. I won't watch a movie until I've pulled it up on Rotten Tomatoes and see how many, if it's a splat or if it's a red. If it's got like a 15, I'm not watching it. I don't care if you thought it was great. I'm like, that's two hours. I don't know, you know. Not risking it. But I also, you know, I'm a, I'll, I'll like not just look at the, uh, the critic reviews. I've got to go see what normal people think about it too. Because critics, they're, you know. So I like to let's see both. Sorry. But I have to see both, and I'm like, okay, am I going to watch this? It's like, if I'm going to a new restaurant, first thing I do, never eaten there, I'm going to go to Yelp, or I'm going to go to Google, and I'm going to say, how many stars you got, right? I'm not eating at your two-and-a-half-star eatery, unless it's Taco Bell and I'm hungry, right? <laughs> but, you know, and our culture's wired us that way, right? To the point that some people, right, will go into a restaurant, and the waiter's had a bad day. His mom might have died the day before. Who knows? We don't know. He's had a bad day, and so... Lord forbid, he gives you something subpar service, and now the thing that we walk out, we're like, this place stinks. And like, you know, Joe was my server, and he blah, blah, and we thought, that's the thing to do now, right? And you can go and you can see these horrible, like all these, I eat there one time, and it was, you know. And our culture is just kind of, it feeds that, and it wires us that way because we're all professional critics now because we can be. We have access to it. And here's what I'm saying. That spirit has made its way into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. And listen, every church in America can be criticized. None of us are above it. Not a single one. It's easy to find things to complain about. We can go through and we can critique the music, the sermon, the welcome, the children's ministry, the building, the cleanliness, the friendliness of the people. And to some degree or another, we need to do that from time to time in the right circles to try to make things and do things with excellence because we believe excellence honors God and we want to do that. But there's a difference in that 
and a critical, cynical spirit that walks around like the, you know, human Yelp, right? The human Facebook review, the human Google review, the the Rotten Tomato expert, and then always can find something, listen, something, something to complain about, something to critique. And you'll talk to people sometimes, and they've been in however many churches, and they can criticize something about every single one of them, but they hadn't gotten involved and served any of them. And Jesus didn't say, blessed are you if you're a good critic. Blessed are you if you can point out the problems. Blessed are you if you, can, if you know what's wrong and nobody else does. Blessed are you if you've, if you, if you've, if you've mastered understanding everything, all that. No, Jesus said, blessed are you if you see my example of service, and then you go and you do likewise. That's the blessing, and that's why, that's why there's a lot of unhappy, unhappy Christians. Because the blessing comes getting, getting involved and in actively serving Jesus and his people. Do something. And if you aren't serving somewhere this morning, if you aren't serving others, you're missing out on a blessing. Jesus says so. So how can you serve? Who can you encourage? Who can you pray for? Who can you help? How can you put someone before yourself? How can you plug in to the local church? How can you plug into the life of a fellow believer? How can you serve your small group, your church, your spouse, your Christian friends, whatever? Are you pursuing service? Imagine with me for a moment a community full of people committed to the towel and the basin approach to life and ministry. Imagine with me for a moment a church full of people that have been served by Jesus and know it and who are secure in his love for them and they aren't looking for someone else to fill a God-sized hole in their life, but they're committed to serving others in humility and love because Christ has served them. What might things look like? How might things be different? What might it be like to be a part of a church like that? What might our city and our neighborhoods look like? Imagine with me for a moment a church where people show up looking to be blessed doers and blessed givers and looking to bless others instead of just to critique and criticize and take and be seen. It would look a lot more like Acts chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and that kind of stuff that we see in the New Testament than a lot of what we see in our world today. That's what it would look like. And I believe it can happen. I believe it can happen. Jesus can do this in me, can do it in you, can do it in us if we choose to cooperate in him, with him, and what he's doing in our life. So let me ask you today, how do you need to cooperate with God today and what he wants to do in your life? Maybe today you need to let Jesus serve you. Maybe you've never humbled yourself before God and said, you know what, God, I can't save myself, I can't rescue, I can't be good enough. I can't fill my own cup. I'm empty before you. I'm, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I'm in need of saving. I'm in need of rescuing. And I believe Jesus, he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He died for me on the cross. He rose from the dead. And I just surrender my life to you by faith. I'm coming to you and I am asking you to cleanse me, to purify me, to wash me, to make me new. Maybe that's today. Maybe that's what you need to do today. Even if you've been serving in the church for years, I'm asking you, have you let Jesus serve you? And maybe today, believer, you need to remind yourself of his service for you, of his love for you. You know, big deal. Jesus wants us to understand that he loves us. That's why he did things like this. 
Uh, that's why his word is filled with, with these things. That's why he, he did this visible illustration for them. He wanted them to know, I love you. Knowing everything about you. No, Judas was going to betray him and Jesus washed his feet. Peter was going to deny him and Jesus washed his feet. Peter objected and Jesus said, no, I'm still going to wash your feet. He, he wanted these people to know, I love you. I love you because we need to understand that. Maybe this morning you need to come back to something as simple as that because you, only when you've grasped that can you serve from that position of fullness. Maybe today you need to humbly begin pursuing serving, just action, getting involved in somebody's life, getting involved in a local church, being a solution instead of a critic, right? Picking up a paddle instead of seeing who you can throw overboard. How can we serve one another? Let's pray together.